एवरीवन वेलकम टू अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ अ न्यू काइंड ऑफ सेलिब्रिटी आई एम योर होस्ट वेनल एंड आई एम एक्साइटेड टू ब्रिंग यू अनदर इंस्पायरिंग एंड इंसाइटफुल कॉन्वर्सेशन दिस वीक एट अ न्यू काइंड ऑफ सेलिब्रिटी वी डिफाइन द वर्ड सेलिब्रिटी डिफरेंटली वी डिफाइन इट एज समवन वर्थ सेलिब्रेटिंग आर गेस्ट आर पीपल हु आर डूइंग इनक्रेडिबल वर्क टू मेक दिस वर्ल्ड अ बेटर प्लेस Join us as we celebrate these individuals and learn from their experiences, leadership and wisdom. Today we celebrate Robert Cabrera. Robert is a Rwanda genocide survivor, an award-winning Stanford engineering guru, an entrepreneur and a resilience guru. His background puts him in a unique position to make transformative breakthroughs in a variety of areas, from bringing credit scoring to unbanked farmers to building power systems that better prepare us for natural disasters enjoy this conversation filled with wisdom and inspiration hi robert hey vanel how are you i'm good how are you i'm doing well amazing so we'll start off would love to hear your personal journey and then maybe talk more about like how that sort of led to you doing the work that you did and the different organizations that you've started yeah absolutely my journey began in east africa in rwanda rwanda is the country where we have all the big lowland gorillas so if you see all the documentaries of the big apes those ones are specifically from my parents village Wow. It's a uh, it has a lot of hills, it's very green, very lush, tiny country. And in 1994, we had a civil war that turned into a genocide. And before that, the war happened when I was 5 and 1/2 years old. My father was a metallurgical engineer. He ran the war the country's metal refining factory so we had a good life he'd go to europe and come back with gifts and presents in fact when he was in germany i went to visit him as a baby hmm. so life was very comfortable for us but one day on april 6 in the evening at around 8 p.m. we had two loud blasts and then they said the president's plane had been shot down and no one knew who had done it and around midnight on that same day gunfire started going off and that was the beginning of the war and the gunfire went on for years and months without stopping and because we were in the outskirts of town our area was attacked first and so to survive that onslaught there were six people in my family we went hiding there was a tunnel underground in the back of my house that my father would keep in his equipment some of his more expensive equipment but the conflict was between two tribes the president's tribe and then the opposing people's tribes and my father was the same tribe as the president and so we had neighbors friends people who we worshiped with whose lives were at risk and so he invited 11 other people to come into our house for hiding hmm. and when he did that 
he was signing his death warrant, but it didn't matter for him because he valued life. And that was my first and most important lesson in life. Because although we lost everything, when I say everything, I mean everything. After the war, my father has always lived a happy life with a smile on his face. And although he never said it, it is because he sacrificed himself for the good of others. So your audience is mostly development sector people, impact people that want to do good for others. Everything I have done has been about leveraging my skills, my gifts, my talents to help others. And that all began from seeing my father. So that is the first and most important lesson. Now in the tunnel, we were 17 people, maybe like four or five different families. And we were there for 22 days. We had limited food and in a very small space. And so it did not make sense to be selfish and individualistic. We had to make decisions as a group. A lot of the time in media, in uh, Bollywood, when you have heroes, it's one person is the hero. Right. But in reality, if you look at the Nazi Holocaust or the Japanese concentration camps, people survive when we come together as a group. Hmm. And my, my family and our friends survived the tunnel because we came together as a group. We made decisions as a group. We helped each other as a group. And so that is the second most important lesson. Human beings are very special in the sense that when we work together, when we come together, the final product is greater than the sum of its parts. And so again, for people that are trying to do good in the world, you can go at it alone, but it's better going at it as a group. And so that was the two important lessons and how the war informed who I am. We want on to spend, after leaving the tunnel, everybody was sort of dead. There were dead bodies everywhere. It wasn't safe, it was still fighting. So we walked some 70 kilometers in the middle of the night to the closest safe area. If you look at war movies, you typically see there's a scene of people walking on the road with their bags. That was that scene. And we proceeded to spend the next six years between 94 and 2000 refugee camps in Uganda, then Congo, then Botswana. And therein is where I think your work in education, I began to appreciate it. When you are an immigrant in a foreign country, people do not treat you nicely. And that treatment is worse. The less developed the country, the poorer the people. And so we were bullied, insulted, treated less than rogue animals in the refugee camp. And the only place I had to assert my humanity was in the classroom. And so I studied very hard and I outperformed my colleagues, especially those that were from that country. And so sometimes I was not able to study during the daytime 
all six years in the refugee camps were off grid, no electricity. And when people often ask me why I study energy, which is what I've gone on to do for a living, my answer is very simple. I tell them you cannot appreciate light until you've seen darkness. And I'm referring to those six years. And so sometimes when I had to study beyond daytime, I would have to study on a kerosene lamp outside on the moonlight. And Botswana is in the middle of a desert. So at night, there's a breeze. So I remember one time I was studying for like a crazy science test. And every time I'm trying to study my small book, the wind blows, the kerosene lamp goes out. And I remember being frustrated. And so I take a break. I look up in the sky. I see some stars. And then I see an airplane fly by. And I ask myself, how can we get some of that light down here for everyone? And number two, how can we keep that light on so that when we need it the most, it doesn't go out like the stupid kerosene lamp. And so that was the birth of my obsession with energy and keeping the lights on. I went on to study engineering at Stanford. I went on to win their biggest tech competition and then study power systems, the smart grid in grad school. And I spent a couple of years advising Obama in his work for energy for Africa. I worked with 50 energy companies in nine African countries. And that's when I realized that, again, for poor people, it's not a matter of access to education or healthcare or solar panels. It's money. It's a money issue. And so in 2016, I started a credit scoring company, an alternative credit scoring company, whose job was to give access to people in the informal sector to make them bankable. 90% of Africa is not banked. And so I did that, and that company is doing well. It's now in four countries. It's being used by 120 teams to lend $2.5 million to 5,000 businesses every week. Wow. Now, when the weather started acting crazy because of climate change, I teamed up with a grad school friend of mine, actually another gentleman from India, from Kokotar, And we asked ourselves a simple question. When disasters happen, people wait for them to happen and then you send assessment crews, you see what went wrong and then you send resources. But technology, artificial intelligence and machine learning are mature enough and we have enough history of past incidents that we can begin to model and predict what's going to happen. And so we built a system that looks at past data simulates weather and can predict down to pole to pole, down to transformer, what is going to go wrong when a monsoon comes, when a rainstorm comes, when a flooding comes. And we can predict that information up to 96% accuracy four months in advance. This week was when the big intergovernmental panel on climate change came out. They said for every half a degree of temperature rise in global climate, three times more magnitude and frequency of crazy events. And so these things are here. And my current venture is a climate defense company. Instead of waiting for things to happen, let's plan ahead so we can prevent them. So in a nutshell, 
you know, my father's sacrifices inspired my ability to say, hey, whatever gifts I have, I want to use them to help as many people as possible. My days in the refugee camp helped me understand your profession, education. It's important. It's especially important for people that have nothing because it is their only tool to better themselves. So I thank you for the work you do. I thank you for the work uh, Teach for India does. I think it's phenomenal. And I'm a living testament to that. So that's my story in a nutshell. And we can dig deeper. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I've read a, a couple of books about the genocide and the civil war that had happened. And I think I can't even begin to imagine how overwhelming and horrific the entire episode might have been. But I think what's really beautiful is the learnings that you've shared from that and the journey that, you know, you ended up on after. But would love to understand a little bit more on just if you can elaborate on um, what led to that sort of resilience, the determination to study the way you did later in the refugee camps, as well as that 22 days with everyone, incredible amounts of uncertainty and fear. If you could just talk a little bit more about was that because of the collective that you spoke about or was there something different that Maybe what, did people differ in the kind of resilience they showed? Like, just would love to understand a little bit more. Absolutely. So several things come at play. I'll begin with the 22 days in the tunnel. What I learned is we as humans are amazing. We are built amazingly. We have the ability for a lot of things, to think, to love, and... No matter your faith, we are created in an image of something great and more powerful. And because of that, our capacity to overcome odds is unlimited. This is what's always going to make us superior to machines, for example. A machine can only do what you programmed it to do. If it meets a condition that it wasn't programmed to do, it can't deal with it. Human beings, no matter how odd unknown and expected an event, we have the ability to navigate it. And it is my opinion that each of us is born with a gene, a strong gene for resilience. The question becomes, when we face hardships, do we give it an opportunity to come out? Any hardships you face is like sand going through rocks, right? The rocks can either destroy you or they can refine you, depending on how you react to it. But in the tunnel, we took each day as its own, each minute, each hour. And when you stop worrying about the future and you're in the moment, you have less on your plate. But most importantly, if you are humble enough to put yourself second to others, you receive a tremendous sense of fulfillment and gratitude that it gives you the strength to go on. So part of those group dynamics being strong was not putting your needs ahead, but putting the group's needs ahead. And that's how we persevered. And down to this day, I think humility is any visionary's greatest friend because it allows you to take yourself from the equation and put others ahead. That's how you make the best decisions. But it also allows you to be humble enough to know your limitations, 
and be able to ask for help so that you can, as a group, achieve the greatest. And so that resilience that came out for us in the tunnel was us being given the opportunity to realize that innate resilience we each have, number one. Number two, it was us being humble enough to put the need of the person next to us ahead of us. And again, if you look at any concentration camp dynamics, that is how people survived 10, 20, 30 years of such experiences. So if I could suggest to the audience a trigger for that resilience, it's not worrying too much about the future. And the way you don't worry about it is be humble enough to put other people's needs ahead of you. And you'll be amazed whatever difficult situation you're going through is going to be a positive experience. And the six years we spent in a refugee camp, even when we look back to the tunnel, we all smile about it because although the world was falling apart, we were stronger. The more mm -hmm. humble we were, the more we looked out for the person next to, to you. So that's the resilience piece. To answer your question on the education piece, to be very frank with you, I don't think I studied hard for the sake of knowledge. I studied hard because it is the only way I had to assert my humanity. Me and my fellow refugee camp friends were being abused, were being insulted. And I realized that the only way I could equalize was to do well. And that same set of skills, of course, when I moved to the US was useful because learning eventually became fun, right? And I enjoyed it very much. But what that really points to is not everybody could learn as well as I could in the classroom. So then you wonder, right, of the 7 billion people, what can give me inspiration or motivation to be able to achieve my greatest potential? And I believe it's two things. Every human has the responsibility to discover their gift, right? The meaning of life is to discover your gift. The purpose of life is to give that gift away. If you do those two things well, you can't help but be excellent right? Athletes, their gift is movement, physiology, right? Pharmacists, their gift is chemistry. I realized at an early age from the tunnel that my gift was uncertainty. I'm very comfortable in very uncertain environments. Later in life, the question was, could I add math equations to that uncertainty and could have predicted. And that's what sync does, right? It's when monsoons happens, typhoons, hurricanes, cyclones, we put math equations to it and we predict it. And so I would challenge everyone listening to us to try and really think about what their gift is. And as long as they live their life giving that gift away, they will be excellent. They'll be better than the other 7 billion people. And that's okay because all 7 billion of us are different. We all have our different gifts. And as long as we give those gifts away, we are living our purpose. And when we're living our purpose, we can't help but be excellent. 
Thank you for sharing that. I think such beautiful words of wisdom. It's going to stay with me for a while. Especially, I think, when you said the humility to put others' needs before yours during such times, I think something that is definitely like an aha moment for me because oftentimes you associate the fight and flight with just, you know, blinding those other feelings and just self-preservation. So I think I really enjoyed hearing that. Um, I think building on that piece from like you mentioned that your father took in, you know, 11 people from the neighborhood and from different tribes and you mentioned that it was like writing off a death sentence and a lot of when you'd read about it, when, you know, I would read about it in the books, etc. There's a lot of how people who were living next door, friends, neighbors turned against one another and led to killings as well. Like, could you maybe elaborate more on if there's anything different from what you've already shared that how was how were the 17 of y'all so different from maybe what was happening out there where neighbors were turning on neighbors? And we see these trends, not just in many cases, right? Whenever war takes place. So would love to maybe hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest driver for the unity among the people there was we, we shared the same faith. And the faith taught us that barriers that human beings put in place, boundaries, geographic location, race, tribe, color, height, location, all those are fictitious. At the end of the day, we are all creation and we are equal, and we are put on this earth to love and take care of one another. And what causes conflict, politics, tribes, is typically fictitious. And if you believe in humanity at its core, and you are willing to risk your life for it, it is the greatest act of love. There is no act, there's no greater love of act than being willing to sacrifice your life for others. And our faith very much emphasized that. And the flip side of that equation is also true. There is no greater joy than in giving. And so if you're willing to give this ultimate gift, which is your life, you get the greatest fulfillment. And as I mentioned, it was true for my dad's life. And so I think everyone else around us had a very divided value system based on tribe, based on family, based on people were looking for excuses about hate, about you are different. Whereas our value system was a value system based on unity. And we live by that and we're ready to die for that. And looking back, history shows that whatever value system people around us had only led to their demise. I mean, 800,000 people died in less than 100 days. So clearly, whatever the value system was, it wasn't working. However, the value system of those that valued each other, other human beings, worked because we survived and we thrived. And so in a nutshell, that's, that's sort of what drove us. A mentor of mine always tells me something which I found to be true. No matter your race, your location, your religion, 80% of human beings are the same. We all like food. We all like music. We all like certain things. We all like jokes to be happy to eat, to drink, to sleep. But 
we all spend 100% of our time spending on the 20% that we're different. And instead of being humble enough to value those differences, majority of humanity spends a lot of the time hating on those differences. And that's what causes conflict. But I think focusing on our similarities and our shared values is one of the key things that I think inspired me, my family, and our friends to come together and live through that horrific experience. That's incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And Robert, you mentioned in the, the your motivation in the refugee camp to get into education was to sort of, you know, like live your humanity and feel connected with other people. I just wanted to understand, was it that the other people in the refugee camps were bullying? Can you elaborate on, because I'm assuming many people were coming there from that shared experience together. So within the camps, what sort of led to the bullying piece? Yes. So one of the places in the world that's going through conflict right now is Myanmar right? They have issues right now. So imagine people from Myanmar end up in a refugee camp in India. Naturally, they are different, so they're going to be treated differently. And that treatment will not always be nice. When you are different and you come into somebody's homeland, they feel threatened. They feel like you're overpopulating, you're going to take over the resource, whatever their reasons, they don't treat you nicely. And so the refugees that were in the camps I was in, were not treated nicely by the host country. And so the host country believed we did not want, we didn't, we didn't belong there. We didn't deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. And their children who were in the same classes as us were naturally smarter and better, whatever, superhumans. And yes, they could make these claims in words, but indeed in reality, I prove them wrong. An example is one of the things one country prided itself in was its native language, right? Its native language was good, better than everyone else. And the native language was so difficult that on average, people were getting the highest marks, 20 out of 100. Wow. Right? The whole three years I spent in that country, I refused to speak the language as a show of defiance, but I never got anything less than a 97 on the exam. (laughs) And that really annoyed them. And that made me very happy. So that's what I mean by, I studied to justify the playing field. Hmm. And up to now, um, I just posted another podcast on Facebook and um, the people in that camp, um, WhatsApp groups, I'm not a part of, my uncle is, And he told me 22 years later, people still remember the records I said academically, right? That was the point. Like we were humans and we deserve respect. And if you're not going to give it to us, we're going to take it. That was it. Right. So the school that you studied in was a common school where refugee children as well as the host country children were all studying together. That's right. Right. Got it. Right. And then how did your journey from there to the US and and or actually to Stanford, right? It's a very dramatic 
shift to imagine and an incredible journey. How did that sort of come about? Absolutely. So after three years in Botswana, our application for citizenship was denied. And the UN sponsored us to move to Memphis, Tennessee, which is in the southern part of the US. And the same dynamics happened when I moved to the US, right? I would help my fellow classmates with their work in the classroom. And then when we go outside to play, they'd ask me ignorant, ignorant questions. Like, do you live in trees? Do you walk around naked? Are monkeys your cousins? Do you have pet lions? And these are the same people who had just helped with math or science or sociology. And they were ignorant and their level of ignorance was astounding. And then I studied them closer and they spent all their time instead of reading and studying, watching television and cartoons. So they knew cartoons and celebrities, but they knew nothing about their homework. And I made a decision then and there to never own a television. Wow. Up to this day, I've never owned television. I've never played video games. Wow. Because I wanted to be the opposite of the crowd. And naturally, if all your friends are spending hours playing video games and you spend your time studying, the difference will show. And so that is what allowed me to perform compared to my colleagues. But also a huge credit goes to my parents. Parents expect you to do well. My father expected perfection. As in, if I had, I remember my most of my career, I had 100, 100, 100, year average 100. Then one time I come home and I have a 99 and he laughs. I'm like, why are you laughing? He said, you have one less than 100. I said, but the next guy to me had a 60. I said, he said, I don't care. And I thought he was being rude. But back then, there were, I think, two reasons looking back. Number one, he knew I could do better. And number two, I was comparing myself to people in my school. He was wanting me to be the best in the world, period. And so by the time I was in the 10th grade, he actually enrolled me at the local community college. So I would leave high school in the daytime. And at night, I would take college classes. Oh, wow. To keep me busy. I thought, you know, it was just fun stuff. And those college classes helped boost my GPA. Mm. And so by the time I graduated high school, I had a crazy high GPA. And I think that's sort of part of what got me competitive into this, some of these top universities in the U.S. Right. And I had always wanted to study science and technology. And at the time, Stanford was the top school. And so when I applied, I think my year, the admission rate was like 4, 4.5, 4.6, the lowest ever. But they gave me a full scholarship. And I went, I visited. I saw the blue sky and the palm trees. I said, hey, I'm here to stay. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, most credit goes to my parents. They, they created an environment for me to thrive. And they didn't really pressure me in one direction. But at the same time, 
they helped me understand that I was capable of being the best at whatever I wanted to be. So they didn't care what I did, whether it was music, science, they didn't care. Whatever you do, just be the best at it. That was it. I love that. And also just, I think your ability in all of these scenarios and at a fairly young age at that point to be able to pull out such important insights and learnings and sort of craft your life accordingly, like the television and what you learned from there. I think that's quite phenomenal. From there also, I'm just thinking about the amount of environments you've sort of changed, right? Socially, people fitting in. What were few things that you kept in mind that allowed you to sort of settle into these new environments quickly? So I think that's a cultural question. In the beginning, I've grown up, traveled, lived in over 13 countries. Wow. And at first, you know, learning a new language, meeting new people was survival. But as an adult, it's become more of a pleasant experience. I enjoy traveling. I enjoy meeting new cultures. And it all goes back to what I told you earlier. When we travel to new places, we think, oh, I'm going to Fiji. They're different. So I'm going to be alert. I'm going to be cautious. But what I've learned enough, and most especially I learned it when I went to Turkey, right? Turkey was the craziest place I'd ever been, different from any place I'd been. And I had the best time of my life. Was that ultimately we all like the same things. We like to eat. We like to drink. We like to listen to good music. We like to laugh. And so if you embrace that, you know, from the poorest people in the slums in, you know, Kenya, South Africa, to the people that live on private islands in California, they all like the same thing. And as long as you are willing to indulge another person's interest and have this sort of conversation, listen to another person's story, you realize that you have similarities. And more importantly, you pick up a few things that you can take and go, right? So being open-minded in that way is pleasant. It's a pleasant experience, but it makes for a much richer interaction and it makes you grow and improve over, over time. One of the things that I obsessed about is growth. Some of that growth is myself learning, but some of it is also talking to other people and learning from them. So um, thank you for sharing that. I'd love to learn more about the work you've done with energy as well as the alternative credit system. Maybe if you could share a few stories of the biggest impact you've seen with the credit system when you started it up and what led you towards that idea in the first place. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, my goal had always been how can we give affordable access to energy for everyone? And so my first way to do that at scale was working with one of the U.S. agencies had a mandate to bring energy to off-grid energy companies. And they had a portfolio of 50 energy companies in African countries. And this was sort of rural off-grid, you know, nine hours in the village, potholes, rain, got to push the car type places. And these people had amazing technology and they had the know-how and the demand was there. The problem is these people they were selling these devices to just could not afford them, number one. 
And number two, the companies themselves were not bankable. They were not investable. Right. So part of my job was to make them investment ready. But even if the companies were investment ready and they had money, if their customers didn't have the ability to pay for it, then their reach was limited. So then I decided to ask myself, how do people in the informal sector access money? And that's when I discovered non-bank financial service providers, microfinance, microcredit, credit unions, group loans, women's groups, savings groups, all those ones. And when those people want to go and borrow money, they have to fill out a whole bunch of information and they have to put up a lot of collateral and they have to be in groups. And the whole process takes two to four weeks. Now, if you're a market woman that needs money next day, you can't wait two to four weeks. Right. And because there is no central credit reference agency for them, a lot of those people borrow from one person. And then when it's time to pay back A, they go to B, C, D, and the default rates are high. So the way the lenders hedge against that is by charging them crazy high interest rates. So I said, okay, is it possible to develop a system that one can allow these people to be able to get credit real time versus Hmm. waiting four weeks, number one. Number two, to keep track of people that have multiple loans so that they don't ruin the system by Hmm. defaulting and therefore increasing the rates for everyone. And I started out in Ghana, West Africa. I worked with a microfinance company that had 30,000 borrowers, 80% of whom were market women. And we realized they had 400 factors. And we created a system that could predict whether someone would pay back a loan or not, at first with a 70% accuracy, right? So now it's no longer four weeks, it's real time. And you know who's going to default or not. And this allowed them to lend to more people and it allowed them to decrease their default rates. And so the problem was solved. Majority of the clients that are using it now are able to, like I said, lend real time. And in a market where default rates are 40% or higher, my clients have default rates less than 3%. Oh, wow. I discovered that of all the different groups, farmers are the most credit worthy. If you give them a loan and you give them time to harvest and sell their crop, they'll pay back 100% of the time. But people don't understand farmers. They think they're poor and they judge them and they think they won't pay back. Hmm. We realize that, for example, 60% of the world's cacao that goes into chocolate is grown in Ghana and Ivory Coast, smallholder farmers. They have an entire value chain that's defined, right? They have people that buy the cacao beans from the farm to the warehouse. The price is set before the season. It's the only crop whose price is set before the season. The cacao beans, 80% of them are pre-sold before they're harvested. Demand for chocolate has been going up at 4.5% for the last 20 years. But because the farmers are so poor, because they don't have access to money to be able to increase their productivity, they are harvesting at 10% of their capacity. 
Oh, wow. And so for the last two years, I've been working on a bank to bank the farmers where they are, right? And part of that is we realize that they are currently harvesting two, 300 kilograms per hectare. If they had a solar-powered irrigation system, they could be harvesting 4,000 kilograms per hectare. Wow. 10x. And so that loan, that credit, allows them to get access to that solar-powered system that in turn increases their income by 10x. And so it became clear to me that the way to help poor people, whether it's access to education, access to healthcare, access to energy, was to first solve their money problem. Mm. And that's what specifically the credit system was built to do. That's incredible. And can you share more about how is the defaulter rate so low when the rest of the market is so high? What is different? Absolutely. As I mentioned, a lot of the lending is done to say, hey, 30% of the loan, you have to put it up in cash and we're going to take collateral, right? So if you default, your things are gone. It's lending with, I'm going to help you do better versus I'm going to take your money whether you like it or not. I think it's part of that. The second piece of it is, I don't know whether you're going to pay back on a loan or not. So I'm going to take down payment collateral and I'm going to charge you high interest rates. So no matter what, I'm going to make my money. However, if I know who's going to pay back a loan or not, I know that you are safe bet. I can give you low interest rates, which makes me more competitive. Number one. Number two, if you pay back on time, your loan amount is going to grow. So you're going to do well. I'm going to do well. So a lot of the clients I deal with have that growth mentality because they know that they're going to do well as a lender if their clients do well, as Mm. opposed to I'm going to make profit whether you do well or not. Mm. I think sort of that's part of it. Next year, some of them are going to be in like six countries or something of that nature. Wow. And you were mentioning the AI energy predictive system. Could you maybe share where it's, being used or where all it can be used so that I understand that better? Yeah, absolutely. Me and my co-founder realized that the field of artificial intelligence is mature in other sectors. It's mature in healthcare. IBM Watson studies a whole bunch of literature and finds the cure to cancer. It's mature in the financial sector. They have fintech. They have blockchain, but the grid, the electric grid is the exact same it's been since the 1889. It's old. And so if something is old and is very expensive to upgrade, the best way to manage it is to have awareness, situation awareness about what's going on now, but also in the future so that you can predict those scenarios. And it turns out in the U.S., every energy provider is required by law to keep a digital version of the grid. But also whenever things happen, interruptions happen, they're supposed to record it. And so what we've done is trained electrical grid vocabulary to AI so that it's now an energy AI. Think of it like Alexa or Siri, right? You can right. tell Siri, hey, Siri, play... Slam Dog Millionaire theme song. 
and it's going to play it. So we've built a system that you can ask, hey, what's the voltage of the transformer seven days from now? And it's going to tell you that. So it's a new kind of AI, number one. Number two, with new technology, people are very slow to adopt. So we went for the biggest, hardest problem people have, which is whenever disasters happen, that's when the biggest damages happen. And so we realized that if if we look at what causes power outages in tropical storm situations, 92% of outages are caused by vegetation, trees touching the power line. And so satellite imagery is mature that we can get high resolution, 30 centimeter satellite imagery for anywhere in the world. Most of the time, people monitor the electric grid with humans driving to look at it, but it's too long. Other people use helicopters or drones, but those are expensive and you need human pilots. But by taking satellite imagery, we can get the same kind of analysis. And so we built a system that uses satellite imagery. The second thing is a lot of the people that work to keep the lights on are not data scientists. They don't know how to program. So we've built a system that's a no-code platform. You just upload your models, like you upload your picture on, on WhatsApp, you click a few buttons and you get results. And because it's AI machine learning, there's not so much human computation, so it's cheaper. Hmm. Right now, what takes 10 data scientists about $2.5 million a year, we can offer for like $5,000 in hours. Wow. And so the use case for us is because we're based in the Southeast U.S., it's tropical storm, hurricanes. Hmm. They have six months of hurricanes. And so we are working with large power companies to help them predict which trees are going to cause what power outage, how many customers are going to be affected. It's not enough to tell them what the damage is. You got to tell them how big it is so they can make a decision. Is it worth sending my crew? Is it worth sending my truck? And so we tell them seven risk factors. We tell you what tree is going to cause what damage where, how many incidents, how many customers are going to be affected, the duration of the power outage, how many customers are going to call you, the section, some of the devices that are likely to be destroyed, and how much energy is going to be lost. And so with this information, people can start being proactive, right, instead of being reactive. And that's the technology we have. It's currently being deployed in in Alabama, in North and South Carolina. Wow. That's really incredible. I think to even imagine that something like this was possible, I think the amount especially of disasters happening all around linked to climate, I think this can be just fundamentally game-changing for governments, for large companies, and for people at large. So really, really incredible work. Robert, I just have one closing question but i want to before i get there i want to just check is there anything else on your mind that you'd like to share that we've not covered yet you have been an incredible host you ask great (laughs) questions so nothing nothing on my end great so you have a wealth of incredible experiences wisdom and phenomenal like work and solutions that you're finding for really important problems so when you think about just like overall your journey and you have to share maybe some learnings or advice to people who are listening, 
what comes to mind like what are the top learnings or advice that you'd like to share with people who are listening who may also want to embark on this journey of creating making the world around better absolutely the message i would like to repeat is that every human's goal in life is to find your gift and as long as you leave your life giving that gift away that is your purpose in sports when you get to a place where you're performing so well nothing can stop you it's called the zone the zone is where excellence becomes effortless if you spend your life giving that gift away you will be living in the zone and if you live in that zone your potential your possibilities your impact is unlimited and i encourage everyone to think about that because i believe everyone every single person has a special gift i think the question is do you or have you taken time to find out what it is and are you spending time growing cultivating and sharing that gift with humanity thank you for sharing that and robert this conversation has just been so inspiring for me i think you would have seen i've just had a smile for most part like i think just the energy i'm feeling right now is really incredible hearing everything that you've shared so thank you so much for sharing all of this and hopefully you'll travel when this pandemic is over if you ever travel to india please do come and visit absolutely i have a lot of wonderful friends there so I'll definitely check you out it's a privilege vinil uh, thank you for having me and i wish you a wonderful weekend Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you liked this episode, do subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn. We'd love to hear your suggestions, reactions or even guest nominations. You can DM us on Instagram our handle is at a new kind of celebrity or email us at a new kind of celebrity at gmail.com. We look forward to meeting you soon. Till then, good luck and take care.